How does minority activism help stop authoritarianism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Shaka Dalmia. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragoni, your host, and today I'm speaking with Shaka Dalmia. Shaka is a columnist at The Week, and she also writes regularly for other publications like The Wall Street Journal and USA Today, just to name two. Formerly, she was a senior analyst at The Reason Foundation, and in my opinion, wrote some of the best articles from Reason Magazine. Shaka regularly writes on the topic of immigration and culture. One of her articles, Indian Immigrants Are Saving Canadian Hockey, was one that informed our previous conversation together. Today, some of her other articles on minority groups, which we will include in our episode notes, will inform much of our conversation. Shaka, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me on, Alex. So Shaka, our question today is, how does minority activism help stop authoritarianism? Of course, there's many ways we can go with this. So I'm going to just start by doing what you often do when you write your essays and articles with a little bit of background and context for the points we're going to be talking about today. So let's start with this. I want to get into the mythology Uh, And the idea that you've talked about in many articles and in a a talk with with the ILS recently, there's this idea that you say, this mythology of sort of the the white Christian American being the one who who at their core is is sort of the one who's who's for small government and and the traditions of liberty. Of course, the flip side of that is often the outsiders or minorities, for instance, who are are coming to corrupt these institutions and seize the state for themselves or or be be a proponent of socialism or, or whatever else the case may be in whatever decade. All that to say... Can we can we get into where you think that mythology comes from and, and, and why it's taken root and, and, and hold of what a lot of people think of when they think of the American tradition of liberty? So, you know, uh, I write a lot about immigration and uh, and it's it gives if you write about immigration, it gives you a very interesting glimpse into how the conversation is getting shaped and why it's getting shaped in that way. And. You know, uh, if you cover immigration, one of the arguments that you constant, and I'm very pro-immigration, just to lay my priors on the table. Um, and if you are, you know, writing from a pro-immigration perspective, one of the arguments you constantly, constantly, constantly confront is that if you let too many immigrants in, they are going to change your cultural ways. Um, they come from different cultures, the host country's culture is different. So you, you know, you let too many in, obviously it's going to have an effect. And that's obviously true, you know, it does have an effect. Uh, But the argument in America, given that America is not, you know, it's not like France, right? Where to be a Frenchman, you have to speak, you know, like, French in a certain way, you have to have a sense of certain kind of sensibility. Uh, You know, I mean, America is not like that. America, you know, to be an American, you just have to kind of adhere to certain core commitments of Americans. So how does immigration to America affect, you know, the American culture? And yet, yet you see this argument made in America all the time. And what's taken to be culture over here in America is that, you know, what you were just describing, that, um, you know, America has this tradition of uh, culture of uh, freedom and limited government. And there is a certain, uh, and there is a certain antecedent to this culture. And the antecedent is that, you know, the pilgrims came over here because they were escaping uh, religious persecution and they built this country, you know, through their own grit, through the brow of their sweat by their hands and, you know, what have you. And so there is a culture of like self-reliance and liberty that goes together uh, with limited government. And, uh, you know, if you let too many immigrants who don't come from this kind of a background, you know, who come from third world countries where, or socialistic countries, well, then they don't come with this culture and they'll dilute our commitment to freedom and they'll dilute our commitment to sort of limited government and self individual responsibility. They'll ask for government handouts and what have you. And, you know, if you listen to Rush Limbaugh, which I hope you don't, but if you were to listen to (laughs) Rush Limbaugh, uh, this is a constant theme of his, right? right? right. You know, Mexicans and Hispanics, you know, I mean, he's constantly, you know, showing surveys of Mexicans and Hispanics. Well, you know, they are, you ask them, should the government be in the business of giving welfare handouts? And they say, yes, the government should more to help people. Bingo, these people 
people are not freedom lovers, apparently. And then, you know, you have somebody like Trump arrive on the scene. One of the closest thing that America has seen to an, you know, authoritarian. And what happens? These same self-reliant Christians who are apparently love uh, limited government and, you know, what have you, this white Anglo establishment votes for this man. And so, you know, how, and here they are accusing, um, you know, non-white immigrants of not loving liberty enough. And yet they are the ones who voted for the closest thing to an authoritarian. So this kind of like, and this is not about white and it's not about black or, you know, colored people or anything like that. Fundamentally, what I believe is that, uh, you know, majorities in any polity have a way of uh, articulating that country's principles and commitments, you know, whatever they are whatever those commitments are, but there is a majoritarian stamp on them. There's an imprint on them. And that's, but that's just one way of articulating the, those principles. And it's not always even the most uh, consistent way to that country's commitments, way of uh, articulating those principles. I mean, liberty doesn't, isn't just the lack of welfare handouts, right? Liberty is a whole lot of other things, mm -hmm. but that, Associating liberty with a lack of welfare becomes the way of defining liberty. Uh, but ultimately, this definition of liberty will always, always redound to the majority's benefits and not necessarily to the minorities. And when minorities have a different articulation of liberty, that's just kind of like threatening to the majority. It doesn't matter if it's the white majority or the Muslim majority or the Hindu majority. That's just how the world works. So that's kind of what's been happening in America, at least, is that, um, uh, you know, the majority has become captured. Uh, by a certain warped understanding of liberty and limited government. And you really need sort of this minority viewpoint to correct that and to save the majority from its own worst authoritarian impulses. Right. Yeah. No. And I think it's great that you clarify exactly what you're saying. A lot of our conversations today is going to be centered around America, possibly Canada, but let's just say broadly North American. So you're exactly right. We're not just talking about white and black here. It just so happens that the majority culture traditionally and now in the United States has been white. So for everyone listening, if me and Shakar are talking fast and we slip up, just so you know, that's what we mean. It's really about majority and minority cultures here. It just so happens that it happens to be white in the United States traditionally and now. And and on that note, I want to move in a little deeper into something you touched on. You're, you're absolutely right that, you know, uh, people like Rush Limbaugh or even even quite frankly, more serious people will point to minority groups and outsiders or even groups within uh, the United States, like like, for instance, the the uh, the black communities that just aren't part of the, the white majority. You know, these are the people that aren't, uh, uh, you know, for these sort of tra traditional values of liberty that came from sort of that, that pilgrim sort of seeds, as you were talking about. And, and you're absolutely right that, you know, as, as we go into the future, you know, the demographic people like Joe Biden uh, are, are looked at as sort of like the second coming of the Soviet Union in some people's eyes. But you make a good point. I guess when it came down to it, when someone like Trump came along who did talk with an authoritarian bend and, and did talk about things that you know fly in the face of these traditions of liberty, it, it wasn't the minority vote that propped this person up, was it? Exactly. I mean, if you look at the breakdown, uh, you know, uh, 57% of whites voted for Donald Trump and 80% of blacks voted for Biden. If you look at Asian America, and this is, you know, across uh, not just sort of races, but it's also across uh, socioeconomic groups, right? So uh, Hispanics, 75% of or 72 or 3% of Hispanics voted against Donald Trump. About 75, 76% of Asian Americans voted against Trump. Now, uh, Asian Americans are the richest minority in America. And, uh, you know, Hispanics are uh, somewhere in the, you know, more middle and then Blacks are the poorest minority in some ways in America. And so across the board, across socioeconomic groups, minorities voted against Trump. 
and the majority white uh, population also, I mean, you know, there is this idea that uh, vast majority of Trump support came from, uh, un, you know, lo- less educated uh, white Americans. Right. That's the stereotype. Exactly. Yeah. That's the stereotype. But that's actually, I mean, that's true. But his support was much wider than that. So there was this piece that Radley Balco wrote in the Washington Post about, you know, one of the people in the January 6th insurrection. Uh, was uh, this white yoga instructor from California who is, uh, you know, caters to a very wealthy suburban white community and has roots in all kinds of Eastern philosophies. And uh, and I think we, you know, although a great bulk of uh, Trump support does come from sort of rural, low-income uh, you know, non-college edu- educated whites, but there is also a cohort of a lot of white suburban men mm-hmm. who who have supported Trump. So just as minority appeal, uh, you know, minorities across socioeconomic you know groups have not voted for Trumps, white across socioeconomic groups have voted for Trump. So his authoritarian, tri- uh, you know, appeal is across the board. So which is my which is why my contention is that you know if you're looking to stop Trump's authoritarianism, uh, a great deal of that energy to stop him will come from minorities. And there's a simple reason for that. He threatens minorities. So they will come and vote against him. His authoritarianism uh, is appeal appeals to the interests of whites to the detriment of minorities. And so they will come out and vote against him. It's sort of as simple as that. One thing you said uh, to add to this is you said, if anything, uh, whites elected Trump because they think America's traditions of liberty and constitution no longer work for them. Yeah. Whether they consciously know it or not, that that's one of your opinions here and thoughts is that that's ultimately what they were doing is like this this whole idea of, of you know, liberty, people coming here, establishing their own life, whatever the case may be, that's actually not working for us anymore. You know, it's very interesting. I used to write a lot about affirmative action, uh, uh, you know, back when... Um, uh, uh, there was this whole slew of initiatives, ballot initiatives around the country pushed by Ward Connerly uh, against racial preferences in universities. And I was a supporter of Ward Connerly and against affirmative action programs at that time. Um, and I still am to some extent, although I've changed my mind a bit about that. Um, but one of the things that uh, you know minorities and blacks used to say was that you know every that there have been affirmative action programs of one kind or another always you know in but when these programs start working for us the white establishment wants to change the rules mm. that you know they just they you know then when these start programs start working for us now we want this complete meritocracy that you know everybody has to you know there's an objective standard sats and gpas and it's a meritocracy and now we all have to play by merit even though there has been like a history of all kinds of affirmative action programs, right? I mean, when Jews started getting into Harvard in big numbers, Harvard had a quota against Jews. So that whites, you know, like sort of non-Jew, the white Anglo establishment was not disadvantaged. And there's a lot of truth to that. You know, when certain rules, whatever commitments they may be, no matter how deeply held, when they stop working for the majority, the majority finds all kinds of reasons as to why, you know, uh, those commitments, they may, they may still pay lip service to the commitment, but they will find a way to finesse the story. Right. Simply, they want the system to work for them. And, and to the extent that you have minorities, you know, they are going to be pushing against that. You know, they are the ones, you know, uh, who need those, uh, you know, they have to play by the rules. I mean, minorities usually have to play by the rules because they are not the ones making the rules. They are the ones who are being expected, you know, so they just don't have that much power. And so their power to a very large extent comes from reminding the majority of the rules that it itself has established. So therefore it becomes kind of in some ways the guardian of those rules. So that's what's happening now. The white establishment is saying, oh, these, you know, these rules don't work for us. 
Look at the uh, uh, opioid crisis. If that same opioid crisis had happened in, say, inner city uh, communities among Blacks, you wouldn't have got nearly that wave of sympathy for it. When Blacks were dependent, you know, when there was inner city decline, there was a huge conservative narrative at that time. Well, it's welfare dependency that's causing this inner city decline, right? And there was a truth, and I'm not saying there wasn't truth to that, there was truth to that, but now there is opioid decline and you've got like a whole lot of conservative scholars who are now talking about how we need welfare uh, 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 you know, relief for these communities. We need big government programs for these communities. So suddenly the white establishment has flipped. No longer is it interested in limited government and self-reliance and individual liberty, or at least not to the extent that it was. There is this whole groundswell of, you know, you read people like J.D. Vance, the hillbilly elegy. It's a plea for... Uh, you know, government help, state help for certain communities, white mm-hmm. communities. Um, you know, you there is a whole um, font of scholarship, conservative sc- scholarship that has emerged. Uh, there is this movement of reform conservatism that's exactly about we need more government help for white communities that are not faring too well under the system of limited government. So the rules keep changing because the majority is in control of the rules. As you said, it's minority groups who, because they have to follow the rules, are often some of the people that are the most vocal about actually upholding what they're at least told are the rules, things like freedom of association, uh, freedom of speech, things like that. Right. You you sort of rounded this off in, in, a, in a quote. You said, so I would argue that after this election, it's time to retire the fairy tale that... White America is a unique guardian of American traditions and non-white minorities are a unique threat. So, you know, um, many white Americans may in fact be guardians of the American liberal tradition, as we were saying. We're not saying that it's not like all of them aren't. But your argument is ultimately that these people need to make room in their mentality for the fact that minorities and outsiders also are as well, right? Right. So what I am saying is that, you know, this notion that uh, there are some groups that are uniquely committed to certain principles, regardless of their interests, and some groups who are uniquely uh, committed to their interests, regardless of principle, is wrong. Mm. Both groups, you know, uh, both groups have certain mix of commitment to their principles and commitment to and, and you know, and self-interestedness. And how that comes into play in different sociological circumstances is sort of up for grabs. And uh, so majoritarian, you know, so if you look at countries, if you look at, you know, historically, majoritarian uh, you know, there is no such thing. I mean, there is such a thing, but there is, you know, there, there isn't like this broad universal commitment to the kinds of things that conservatives think that, you know, white America has. It's, you know, there are there are interests and there are principles and the principles are adhered to when they serve the interest and when they don't, then there is a, huge, a whole lot of questioning of those principles. And when there is a questioning of those principles, there will be some groups within the majority who will be, you know, principled, like, I, you know, like uh, there are white classical liberals who are still, you know, in my view, adhering to the principles of limited government and individual liberty right. and separate church and state and, you know, all of that. But there'll be a whole lot who will not because those principles simply don't work for them. And the same is true for minorities, except minorities always have more of a vested interest in making the majority play by its own rules. That's why major- That's why minorities, you know, at crucial moments in history will come and remind the majority of, hey, but you said, uh, you know, um, individual liberty. You said, uh, you know, no welfare state. Well, you know, where are those principles now? You know, you said uh, that, you know, elections, for heaven's sakes, you know, that there should be a peaceful transfer of power. This is what America was all about, peaceful transfer of power. Why are you supporting this insurrection? Where is this peaceful transfer of power? Right. That, that's a really important one. I, I'm not 95 years old or anything, so I haven't seen every president since World War II like like someone like Noam Chomsky has or something like that. But I will say that like I'm still old enough to remember that one of the sort of, um, you know, 
legitimate fears that people had, especially when the war on terror was just starting after 9-11, was like, do you want uh, agents from different states like Muslim countries coming here and uh, fueling some sort of insurrection where they march on the capital? Well, (laughs) there we go. Yeah, right. So, you know, so I mean, it's just remarkable, right? I mean... Uh, the rap against immigrants used to be that, uh, especially undocumented immigrants used to be, they haven't played by the rule of law. Right? Well, that's that's supposed to be their first strike in this mythology, right? That they, They've come here, uh, quote unquote, illegally. So already you're whatever else you do. Yeah, you're already, so you're not, you know, you don't deserve liberty because you didn't play by the rules. Right. right? Uh, and what was there and what is the level of their uh, infraction? that they overstayed their visas or they you know entered the country illegally because there are no good visa programs for them but they are not violent they are living you know productive lives most of them are not getting any welfare at all right so there is is like this technical violation that you know uh, con- you know certain conservative establishment like rush limbaugh turned it into it had this oversized importance on the brain of this sort of you know establishment and then, you know, you have like this massive insurrection, which is like just about as blatant a violation of the rule of law and law and order as you can possibly imagine. And you have now Republicans in Congress who can't even bring themselves to convict the man who mounted this insurrection, right? So it is this idea of like rule of law for those other people and liberty for us. You know, rule of law for them, liberty for us. Law and order for them, freedom for us. And, you know, so it's, and it, and it, this, these are the moments that now minorities who are threatened by this lawlessness of that's emerging have now the wherewithals to say, but no, no, no. Mm-hmm. You said, you know, where, what happened to your, you know, whole uh, ideology about protecting institutions. That's what you were all about. You used to talk about protecting institutions. You were proud of like the pre- peaceful transfer of power. What happened to your rules? And the vast majority of Americans who are now voting for, you know, Biden against Trump, I think are coming from that place. And so we've got to fundamentally recognize them. It's up to us to recognize them as liberty lovers and not like, you know, the enemies of, uh, you know, white interest. And that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Shaka Dalmia today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Liam O'Brien, Peter Jaworski, and Randy T. Simmons. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Shaka Dalmia today. So, Shaka, we, we talked about a lot in the first half. I think it was great for you to trace a lot of your thoughts behind this and why ultimately, as you were saying towards the end of the first half there, why in many cases it's actually the minority groups who are are the ones holding the majority to task in terms of their own principles or claim principles. They're the ones often pointing to the Bill of Rights in a given circumstance when other people seem to be violating it or at least not taking it as seriously as as they claim other other people should. Um, you, to get a little more specific on this, you, you made the, the, the statement straight up, you talked about in the first half, but also in your essays, you've ultimately said that at the end of the day, to tie off what we were saying in the first half, the more diverse America gets, the lesser the danger of tyranny and the better for liberty. And, you know, you, you've ultimately talked about the fact that, you know, multiple factions, different kinds of people, you know, sort of that, that balance is ultimately what, what fuels that that opinion and thought of yours. Is that really what? what it is at the end of the day is, is is there more to talk about or is it as simple as that if you have different people at different corners and different ends of the sort of spectrum balancing each other out you on net have have more liberty you know so i if you were to believe james madison who is the founder or one of the founders of the you know american constitution uh you would think yes i one you know uh, in one recent essay i wrote that the reason liberal democracies 
uh, in the West and specifically in America are in trouble or because they, um, you know, planted their project of pluralism and, um, uh, you know, uh, open, you know, the open society pluralistic project on a demo and a demography that was homogeneous. So, uh, uh, you know, so you had um, uh, a majority interest and then you are expecting this majority, you know, this majority interest to support like pluralism, you know, and and so what you really need is to diversify that demographic substratum and like allow all kinds of people, uh, not just racially, but, uh, you know, different lifestyles, linguistically, cultural backgrounds to come and form a melange. And why is that? That once you have like this diverse demographic strata, you, you'll put liberty and liberal democracy and the you know pluralism and toleration on a much stronger footing why is that and the james madison's argument was essentially you know the whole founding documents in america are one long argument against the tyranny of the majority that's what uh, you know that's where american founders that's where you know every impulse of liberal democracy comes from is to guard against the tyranny of the majority because you know insofar as there is a majority there is a temptation to exercise the strength in numbers right. to disregard any institutions that are not working for you at a, you know at a given time and just muscle your way into protecting your interests it's a very universal kind of temptation uh, and the founders in America were extremely aware of that. They were, they didn't think a minority would emerge in America and oppress the majority population, right? I mean, that happens in history and there are instances right now, you know, like uh, in Iraq, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni and the majority Iraqi population was Shiite and he was, you know, ruling it with very harsh draconian means. So there are episodes of that in history, that's not to say, but the very big, one of the big problems of polities is to keep majority tyranny at bay and allow liberty, you know, to survive despite that. And Madison's scheme was what is, you know, in Federalist 10 and 51, he laid out the scheme of factions. What he said was, what you have to do is expand the sphere, add lots and lots of different groups, continue to populate the country and bring in lots and lots of different groups so that a tyrant can't come and consolidate uh, you know, uh, all of them behind, you know, his agenda. So, you know, if there are multiple groups with multiple interests, it becomes the task of tyranny much, much harder. So, you know, imagine like, you know, if Donald Trump, as you know, and I um, mentioned that recently, I mean, then what was the vote differential between Donald Trump and Joe Biden? It was 5 million votes. Right, not a lot. I mean, not a lot in electoral college states, Five million votes. And right now in America, uh, you know, uh, whites are about 60% and minorities are about 40%. In 25 years, whites are going to be a plurality. If there had if the white population had been 70% or 75%, Trump would have been re-elected. And Trump, you know, was the biggest authoritarian threat. And so it was much easier, it would have been much easier for Trump to, to unite sort of like this white uh, conservative establishment faction around his agenda if, you know, it had been a bigger, uh, you know, it had been a big, bigger presence in America. So, you know, so it's a James Madison argument. Uh, it's also an argument that Lord uh, Acton, you know, the the person who said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, he said, and I have actually a quote from him over here. I mean, Lord Acton went even further. He called for something called what he called the diversity of nationalities. I mean, America is considered a nation of nations, but it's really not. I mean, it is. It's becoming more of one, but it hasn't been historically. Mm -hmm. And he. Lord Acton called for the diversity of nationalities. In his quotes, he said, intolerance of social freedom, he said, finds a corrective in the national diversities, which no other force so efficiently provides. So in Lord Acton's views, diversity was the single biggest protector of human freedom and liberty and liberal democracy.
just because it's harder to reunite a diverse population around a majoritarian agenda that then a tyrant can come and exploit. And just to round that point off, I have the note here, you have said in in a couple of essays and in some talks that, that as you said, when minorities and factions fight for their rights and their interests, they do two things. One of them, as you said, they remind the majority of its allegiance to its own principles, and it forces them to think more deeply about their own principles. And we've talked a lot about that already. The second thing you said was that the practical effect of minority activism is that by demanding rights for themselves, minorities strengthen the guardrails against tyranny and put everyone's rights on a sounder footing. So this isn't just about, as we were talking before, obviously an important component of this whole thing is sort of the public discourse, if you will, surrounding rights and and factions and minorities and things like that. Of course, it's important that the minority factions and minority interests do challenge the majority groups whoever they are, and remind them of their principles. But as you say, that's just one part of it. The other part is that this actually has practical effects. If policies change because of this, and there's actually, uh, even away from policy, if there's actually social progress in this in this way, you're saying it benefits everyone, including the minority group that was pushing for it. And, uh, you know, to just give you a simple uh, example, uh, you know, after the end of the Civil War, uh, and after, you know, Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Act, um, you know, when blacks could, uh, you know, uh, when blacks could, uh, were allowed the franchise, um, you know, uh, but the white establishment was still going out of its way to curb that franchise. And one of the, one of the things that they imposed was something called the poll tax, uh, which meant that if, you know, you have money and you can pay a certain tax, you could vote. Now that tax did not just disenfranchise blacks, although that was the intent of it. It also disenfranchised poor white, uh, you know, rural folks. Uh, They couldn't vote either. So when, uh, uh, you know, when the whole uh, civil rights movement, I mean, this was the poll tax was uh, a scrap before uh, the Civil Rights Act, but when this movement got on the way to scrap this tax, it also protected the rights of, you know, uh, poor whites. So it's, so there are countless examples of that. I mean, the famous example of, uh, you know, like free speech protections, um, f- incident of when the Nazis marched to the town of Skokie, uh, you know, calling for their, you know, free speech rights or, or using their free speech rights to do it. If how the free speech rights in this country have been incredibly strengthened by a certain Jewish activism. Now that activism has also not just helped protect the country's commitments to free speech, but it has also helped, you know, even a, you know, a group like the KKK. Right. So when there is activ- minority-based activism for rights, it's not just about the minorities for, the, for you know, themselves. It's expansive. I mean, interests are a zero-sum game. When whites fight for their interests, or not, I shouldn't say white, but when a majoritarian establishment fights for its interests, interests are a zero-sum game. Welfare for me means welfare not for you. But when my, you know, when you fight for rights, those are kind of infinite. Everybody can get those rights. Those are not divisible. They are, you can replicate the rights. Uh, they are not, it's not a rivalous good. And so therefore, you know, it can be enjoyed by everybody without uh, without diminishing its enjoyment by anyone. Right. And so, um, uh, so yeah, so minority, minority activism, uh, minorities, you know, will ferret out little rights violations. And in the act of correcting those rights violation, they will extend those rights to everybody in a way that a majority, you know, is not quite primed to do because it's, usually far more satisfied with us with the status quo and shifting gears just a little bit but still quite related to that last part of what you're just saying there in one of your articles you write the moral compass of a country is not set by what the government does it's set by how the people respond to what the government does and then you go on to say there is a world of difference between say america and many other countries especially india and you say that in america sometimes things may seem bleak but a lot of the time we can find hope in the reaction of everyday Americans to movements like Black Lives Matter if they express solidarity for the principles underneath that and such. So I guess that's an important point too to add to our conversation that I think a lot of people might listen to 
people like us talk and say, okay, I, I have the solution. We're going to go get elected and fix everything. Whereas in reality, what you're saying here is that the sort of social pressure and external pressure and social movements and social progress that happens over time, th this is just as important as elected positions. And as a matter of fact, elected positions react to these movements in many cases. Sometimes maybe they react opposite, but, but in many cases, they're followers of these movements, it seems. So it's not just about the government, but the people putting pressure on the governments too, it seems. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, when I wrote that piece, things were a little different. This was like, I think, around uh, 4th of July last year that I wrote this piece. And at that time, um, the Black Lives Movement had mobilized to its peak, right? The George Floyd killing had just happened. George Floyd was, you know, the black man on whose neck a white police officer leaned for you know, eight minutes and basically killed him. Uh, and that had mobilized this massive reaction. Um, and, you know, what was the government's reaction? You know, uh, uh, Donald Trump made some of the most incendiary statements, mobilizing state violence against the protesters. I mean, he said he was going to use shock and law to suppress them. He said he was going to unleash dogs on them. And... Right. Uh, which is, you know, and his reaction, the government's reaction to, uh, uh, you know, these kinds of things is always the same. This was the government in India reacted in the same way when, uh, you know, there were uh, Muslims were protesting by this movement by the Modi government to basically take away their citizenship. Uh, I won't go, go into the details over here, but um, the Modi government in India had... Um, floated a bill uh, to basically make every Indian prove that he or she was a citizen. And uh, if Hindus who could not prove that they were citizens would be given amnesty, but Muslims who could not prove that they were citizens would lose their citizenship, even if they had ancestors going back, you know, generations. Uh, and there was a huge protest movement uh, you know, uh, behind this. Muslims in India started protesting just as Everybody in America, whites, Hispanics, blacks started protesting against police brutality. And the government reacted to both these movements in exactly the same way. In India, you know, the Modi government uh, cracked down, was extremely draconian about it. And when the Modi government cracked down, the vast majority of like the Hindu establishment turned against these movements. You know, so they turned against the Muslims who were agitating for their rights. In America, on the other hand, at that time, you saw a shift in, you know, uh, mainstream opinion. Black Lives Matter, which was not a particularly popular outfit till then, gained like 20 points in popularity. The police brutality movement started growing in leaps and bounds. Um, you know, to the point that Donald, Donald Trump, who was otherwise you know, using tear gas to clear these protesters to make room for his photo op, had to respond to this. I right. mean, even he did a couple of good things, uh, you know, on criminal justice reform. And so the, you know, so the way a country responds tells you something about where the moral compass of that country is. And and then this much, I would say that in, uh, you know, in the West and in America, which have had a longer tradition of liberal democracy, these principles have become more entrenched so that it's harder for the government to get away with these kinds of things. Uh, you know, draconian taxes to uh, uh, tactics to curb a major a minority. And um, so, um, you know, so it so America, even in this very difficult time, managed to make some moral progress, you know, at a time of a pandemic, at a time of uh, unrest you know, at a time of like this quasi-authoritarian ruler managed to make some moral progress on the ground. You can't say that for non-liberal policy or, or less liberal policies. The less liberal a policy, the less, um, you know, the less progress uh, 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 countries make in the face of draconian crackdowns like the one that you saw. And tying that back to what you were saying before, as you said, although the issue, well, there's many issues over the past four or five years, just like there always are, but but specifically on the issue of police brutality and things like that, the fact of the matter is, your point is that although this was a, a specific case uh, and, and, you know, a specific set of people that went out and protested and, and, and things like that, um, ultimately, whether other 
groups or other people that maybe fell on a different side of the issue know it or not. Your point is that this uh, activism and this response is actually helping people across the board, as, again, as much as it helps that, that specific interest or these specific set of concerns. Right. I mean, they, and they'll help these groups, you know, at the level of rights. So in India, for instance, uh, you know, Muslim activism, uh, um, you know, to protect, you know, their sort of their, uh, uh, their rights has, is helping not just Muslims, right? It's also helping progressives who are also being thrown into jail, progressive Hindus who are being thrown into jail by the Modi government because they are not hewing to its agenda or because they are questioning its agenda. So, you know, so this Muslim activism in India also helps, um, you know, also helps certain other majoritarian factions who've broken away from the majority. And it, you know, and it keeps strengthening this coalition for, you know, liberty for the want of a way or freedom or right. justice or reform. And so, but if you had, I mean, just think about it this way in, um, you know, if you had only two an 80% say white majority in America and, or, you know, at the time of, uh, you know, at the, in antebellum America, 85% whites, 15 or 14% blacks, something like that was the population break. How much harder for it was abolitionist whites to ally with blacks in order to get a emancipation movement going. There was many whites who didn't like what was happening, didn't think their interests was being served by this, economic interest was being served by this uh, uh, institution of slavery, but it was very hard for them to you know, get the movement going. You have like a diverse population and it allows various minorities to stick up for their rights and then make coalitions with other majoritarian factions who see things that way, their way, thereby strengthening sort of the whole edifice of liberal democracy and, you know, and uh, all its attendant institutions and protections and, uh, you know, and rights. Our, our time's winding down a little bit here. So for the last chunk of our conversation, I want to bring something up that, that I think is quite important. So some, some may, that listening to this here, to our conversation here might naturally say that, you know, what, what, we're, what we're saying is obvious and, and it's easy for, you know, us to sort of point to, ah, look at Republicans, look at Democrats, look at these factions, uh, uh, you know, these two major factions, of course, they're going to fight over things and not understand li liberty and, and all that great stuff, especially those who who broadly call themselves libertarians in the States. We, we might, that might be their first reaction to the kind of conversation we're having. Like, you know, this is 101 for us. Right. But, um, you know, you noted that, you know, those who broadly call themselves libertarians, you know, you would have thought during the Trump era in your observation, these people would have, quote, dropped everything and fought Trump and Trumpism tooth and nail. And then you've gone on to say, but, quote, the libertarian movement was hopelessly fractured between anti-Trumpers, pro-Trumpers and everything in between. The most sustained case against Trump's authoritarian danger, I'm afraid, wasn't articulated by professional libertarians. It was some it was by some breakaway conservative never Trumpers and liberals, end quote. So, so explain that a little bit more. Why do you think that was? What happened there? Now, this this actually kind of thing is in the, it, it, you know, it, it just happened, so to speak. Trump, you know, is, is gone just now in recent memory. But now we can actually look at a little bit of this stuff in retrospect that he's out of the executive branch. Elaborate a little bit and explain a bit more. What do you think really happened there with, quote unquote, the libertarian movement in your eyes? And what are a couple of things we can learn from con constructively about what happened with Trump? Yeah, so uh, like I, you know, as uh, the, uh, the excerpt that you read suggested that, you know, uh, when Trump arrived on the scene, I mean, he was, you know, he was very open about his uh, agenda, right? I mean, he launched his campaign by calling uh, Mexicans rapists and criminals. You know, he, he was, uh, during his campaign, he said he wanted a Muslim registry. Uh, you know, he was openly, you know, questioning all kinds of liberal norms. I mean, he questioned the heritage of a judge who was going to uh, rule on, uh, you know, a case involving him and this fake university that he had created because he was Mexican. I mean, he was an affront to everything that libertarians believed in, right? I mean, independence of the judiciary, he's trashing that, calls call the press the enemy of the people. 
free press. He's, uh, you know, pluralism, toleration, everything that, you know, you could possibly imagine, every liberty. Free markets. Yeah, free markets. I mean, he was for, you know, uh, you know, uh, protectionism. Uh, he ran on an agenda of picking fights with China and every, uh, uh, you know, trading partner of America. And, and he delivered on that. And it wasn't like he was one of the few presidents who actually lived up to his campaign promises and went, went to very great lengths to deliver on them. And so, I mean, it was always like a mystery to me. How didn't just libertarians from day one just kind of like wake, wake up and say, oh, my God, he's like acid to everything we believe in. You Very quickly, you saw like various factions emerging. There was an initial moment when he, you know, announced his campaign. There was this collective yuck among libertarians. But very, very quickly, especially after he first got the nomination and then he won, they started positioning themselves in these weird ways. Some started like, you know, looking at the good in Trump, like what he said he's going to deregulate. This is the, the ledger approach you've talked about in some of your essays. Yeah. So they started taking this, you know, that was one, you know, that was one bit like, you know, they some libertarians started taking this ledger approach that uh, let's just count all the good things he's going to do for uh, the, the libertarian agenda and all the bad things. And what were the good things that he was going to do? There were things like he's going to cut taxes, he's going to deregulate the economy. Um, you know, he's going to do Title IX changes. Title IX is this law um, or this regulation that the uh, Obama administration had issued where, um, uh, you know, which required universities to uh, have very tough uh, practices against sexual harassment on the books. Uh, uh, you know, and so it was like kind of like considered to be feminism gone amok, uh, and what have you. So there were there was talk in the Trump administration. I mean, and the Trump administration changed that, and that was all good. These were all good things. But then, what about the fact that you know he created this massive, massive and draconian police state to control the border? What about the fact that, you know, he was separating kids from the, you know, migrant moms from Central America? You know, what about the fact that he implemented a Muslim ban? What about the fact that he implemented this crazy kind of protectionism and, you know, where every trading partner of America faced new tariffs? All of these, you know, so they, they put them on one side of the ledger. And if you just simply take this you know, ledger approach, there are 10 good things, 10 bad things. You say, oh, not so bad from libertarian perspective. And you, you sign them equal weight as, oh, he, taxes lower by 2%, draconian border measures, one and right. one. There you go. There you go. But there are some things that are just much more fundamental or mm -hmm. some things that are much more draconian, draconian, which needed to be, which need to be weighted differently. And that kind of like that inability to, uh, you know, separate the fundamental from the not so fundamental. That, you know, distinction to make that capacity to make moral distinctions was kind of like absent among libertarians. And it was, it was shocking to me that if this was absent, I mean, you know, the way I see things is that um, conversations about what kind of a welfare state, what kind of a helping hand, how much, you, you know, the state should extend to individuals and to groups. Uh, you know, uh, how much uh, regulation of the economy is optimal. Those kinds of conversations are perennial and we are never going to settle them. There's, we are always going to be. But I thought there was a certain bargain that was settled that we all, you know, that uh, free press is a good thing. Free speech is a good thing. Uh, you know, a ruler who's not trucking in the politics of divisiveness of hate is a desirable thing. Those are fundamental things to a liberal democracy. Those were settled and Trump came and reopened them. And we didn't think much of it. And so it was, you know, and I've been racking my brain as to why that happened. And I, you know, my uh, working theory is that libertarianism arose in the heyday of uh, the Cold War when the socialist threat was ascending. You, yeah, you mean the movement, like as we know it today, like where most of its roots are from, right? Yeah, that's when it, you know, that's when it came of age. Barry Goldwater is considered, you know, to be the godfather of the libertarian movement. And, you know, uh, Barry Goldwater was a 
big warrior against the Cold War, right? And even though he lost the presidential election against Lyndon Johnson, he has a big stamp on the libertarian movement. And so libertarianism movement arose as a fusion with the right in the heyday of the Cold War. So it's primed, it was primed to kind of like recognize and fight the threat of socialism or the threat of socialistic tyranny, uh, uh, you know, from the left. But it complete, because of this fusionism with the right, it didn't take the threat from the right itself seriously. And the alliance was too strong. I mean, uh, the donor base in the libertarian movement is by and large, you know, from the right. Right. And so the internal incentives in the movement were very much primed to not see this threat of this authoritarian. And that's been kind of like both astonishing and depressing to me uh, to watch. Right. One of the things I, I've noticed, at least, is that some people have have made it their business as a primary function of when faced with criticism about Trump to find that one instance or or many instances, actually, of where something similar happened, say, under Obama, right? I think a lot of people were very happy to find out that, oh, look, we found cases of child separation under Obama. So everyone starts getting pulled over here to either just say, oh, look, uh, everyone does it. And then we start arguing about, you know, Obama started the policy and things like that. And then all of a sudden, we're losing track to the fact, okay, okay, great. But right now, in this moment, it's either the same or worse. And yeah. this new person is in charge and they've clearly voiced intentions of not caring about this or even making it worse than it is. So it's interesting to see people pulled away from that aspect of the conversation over the past four years and get into, well, I found this House bill from 2010 and clearly Obama's a bad guy too. Okay, yes, he is, but... No, these very elaborate uh, you know, defenses and arguments that they came up with which were all designed to, you know, not confront the elephant that was just literally staring them in their face, right? So yeah, the aboutism that you're talking about. Uh, oh, well, Obama deported people too. Um, you know, um, the the Muslim belt. Well, Obama had, you know, dropped bombs at uh, Alwaki. I mean, nobody is disputing that previous presidents have all done terrible things. But Trump was something qualitatively, quantitatively different. I mean, for one, Trump was a composite of all the bad of previous presidents, right? Right. And, you know, the pre and this is a, you know, this is a big point is that previous presidents, even when they did terrible things, they understood them as terrible things, right? I mean, they, you know, they, they felt like they had to do something, you know, like something bad for this or that reason. But they understood that this was a bad thing. Trump actually was there was this weird transvaluation of values, like, you know, this open glorification of state violence for the sake of state violence. I mean, he saw that not as a bad thing, but a good thing. And yet libertarians were oblivious to, you know, all of that. So there were, you know, so there were two things. One, like I said, there was this fusionism with the right that created all kinds of blind spots in the movement for all kinds of sociological reasons. That was one reason. And the other one is that uh, over a period of time, and I'm not exactly sure why this is, but there's been this great like preoccupation with the liberal enemy, you know, that has emerged among libertarians. I mean, liberals and it's weird that that should be the case because libertarians are neither of the right nor of the left, right? And to some extent, they are both of the right and of the left. Right. So why this preoccupation with the liberal enemy should become so intense is a little bit puzzling to me. Now, I'm not saying that liberals have not done some pretty horrendous things, right? I mean, there are all kinds of excesses on the liberal side. But those excesses are also to some extent to be expected in a polity. Things are never going to run smoothly. Liberals have overreached quite a bit in some dimensions, but there are also mechanisms in place to bring those in line. And you know, if you read David French, who's one of these conservative writers who broke away from conservatives and became a never Trumper and has written this brilliant stuff, very much in the classical liberal vein uh, against Trump. One of the things that he's a Christian conservative, very serious Christian. One of the things that he points out that some of the liberal uh, attacks on religious freedom were, you know, conservatives fought for those freedoms. They defended themselves. 
in courts and won many of those fights. So the point is that the system was delivering the way it is supposed to deliver. So you don't need to have this you know, intense preoccupation with the liberal enemy um, to correct things. Things were getting corrected you know, by use, using the usual institutional mechanisms. And yet libertarians have become sort of part of the culture wars and enlist and become sort of these willing warriors on the right. I mean, look at the preoccupation with cancel culture. Right. That's an, yeah, that's another good one. Yeah. Yeah. Like cancel culture. Now, I'm not saying there is no cancel culture on the left. There is a cancel culture on the left, but there is an even longer tradition of cancel culture on the right, right? I mean, remember Joe McCarthy who went after communists and atheists? I mean, that was a right wing thing. Right. It, it was looked at as as a good thing that certain writers and certain creatives were blackballed from Hollywood. From a, from Hollywood. A I mean, it was this intense. I mean, if you want to talk about, I mean, there has never been a cancel culture movement that intense as the one that we saw in the McCarthy era. This country was founded on cancel culture, right? Puritans hanging witches in Salem was cancel culture of the, you know. So how did libertarians get so sucked into the, you know, on the right, to the right, uh, you know, in this new cancel culture war? It's just kind of like very, I mean, somebody will have to write a dissertation about this at some point, right? And excavate this uh, socio-psychology of the libertarian movement. But all that said, I mean, so it's been very dismaying to see libertarians who should have been fighting the war uh, against an authoritarian actually succumb to it. And, and I guess to tie that all that back and all, all those great reflections back to our, our main theme today, which is to say that a lot of the friction in sort of the uh, some areas of the libertarian movement with some people in the old guard, if you will, the movement, they were actually being called upon by, if if you will, sort of minority areas of the libertarian movement or smaller pockets or even very many newcomers to the libertarian movement that I myself am familiar with, people that from, from the trans community and other minority communities outside of the fact they're just a minority in the libertarian movement. Um, um, these people are saying, well, hold on, I was, I'm being pulled in and I'm being attracted to this movement based on these sets of principles here. Yeah, and in yes. reality, what I'm seeing is that people seem to be a little, certain people seem to be a little wishy-washy with these principles. So yes, and exactly. And so, you know, these people are reminding libertarians uh, of their own principles. But, you know, another reason, and, uh, uh, you know, and I don't like sort of this identity politics business, but I have to say, I mean, like, look at the libertarian movement, right? I mean, so overwhelmingly white male. I think it's got something to do with its inability to see the threat that emerged, you know, within its own ranks, hmm. because it shares the, you know, these majoritarian concerns much closely, and there wasn't enough of a minority presence to alert it to the rights violations that were, you know, uh, 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 coming, that were emerging from this. Threat. Hence why cor corporate tax is a big issue, though, of course. Yeah, corporate tax has become a big issue because the donor base is all, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, rich donors, vast majority of them white. That is their interest. And so this majority, majoritarian stamp, this, you know, on the system has kind of spilled over to the libertarian movement, too. That's like the other big part of it. And you really do need to diversify the movement to get a proper articulation of liberty. So I've said in the past that, you know, um, liberals have shown minorities the good side of big government and libertarians have shown minorities the harsh side of limited government, right? Until we correct that, stop showing minorities the harsh. So, you know, uh, liberals want to give minorities uh, welfare handouts and libertarians want to take them away in the name of accountability. Well, you know, let's, why not have a different articulation of libertarianism where we say, oh, minorities, hey, you Sikhs, you uh, fled from India during a persecutory chapter in that country's history. We'll give you asylum because we believe in religious freedom, right? right. Like, so find out the issues uh, you know, the, the uniquely libertarian issues that resonate with minorities and give them a positive value proposition, not just sort of this negative, you know, like, uh, you know, we are going to take away your hang handouts, we are going to, uh, you know, call you out because, you know, you are demanding, uh, you know, this right or that right, which doesn't fit in our canon of negative rights, you know, 
just come up with a, a constructive positive value proposition. And in that way, as as you were saying, tying it back to everything else you were saying, that in in that way, you're kind of interestingly enough allying yourself naturally with people who would anyway, in their own interests, need to fight for their rights regardless. Exactly. And you are constantly reminding your, your you know, you, I mean, and in some ways, you're kind of like broadening your own understanding of your own principles and broadening your commitments and therefore putting them on a more solid footing, right? I mean, you're making libertarianism more consistent with itself. Hmm. But, right. You know, and uh, instead of letting these tensions, uh, you know, remain, I mean, like, you know, another example, uh, to give you another example, is that uh, talking about Barry Goldwater, he opposed the Civil Rights Act. Now, the Civil Rights Act was this, you know, eliminated Jim Crow, which was a system of state violence to keep, you know, blacks oppressed and, uh, you know, the under the boot of like, a, you know, vicious apartheid system. Getting rid of Jim Crow was a huge leap in human freedom. You know, because look at all the blacks who were liberated from this awful, awful, you know, reign of terror that they were enduring. Barry Goldwater opposed the Civil Rights Act, not because he was a racist in any way, shape or form, or he felt like blacks needed to be oppressed and Jim Crow needed to be protected. But there was one aspect of the Civil Rights Act that, you know, banned private discrimination. So if you were, a, a you know, say a restaurant, you would have to entertain uh, uh, you know, white establishment, you would have to entertain black customers and vice versa. If you were a black establishment, you would have to entertain white customers. And this was seen as a huge affront to the right of voluntary association by Barry Goldwater. So this was like this minor inconvenience for whites, you know, this minor truncation in the right of voluntary association of, you know, in the eyes of this white guy was a bigger affront to liberty than the liberation of these millions of blacks from this horrible apartheid system. Now, this, I mean, why, how does this happen? It's because your brain has been so captured by a certain majoritarian understanding of liberty that you can have sort of like such a, you know, warped uh, articulation of your own principles. You, and you correct them when you allow more voices to point out, no, 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 this is not right. You know, this is uh, 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 this huge leap forward for blacks and their liberty is good for us. It's good for liberal democracy. It's good, it's good for whites. It's good for our understanding of our own principles. So that's kind of like, you know, that's why you need more voices and you need more, you know, people just asserting their own rights all the time and saying, protect our rights, protect our, our rights, not just this one you know, majoritarian understanding. And, and I actually think that's an excellent place to, to move into our formal wrap up because it sounds like you're you're heading towards putting a finer point on that anyway. So I'll just encourage you to do so now. So Shaka, we've obviously talked about a lot. So and as you know, at the end of the episode, I want to make sure that the guest has the last word. So let me ask you now formally, what what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how minority activism helps stop authoritarianism? If you want someone to take away a, cu a couple of key takeaways from this conversation out of everything we've talked about, what would those ultimately be? You, at the time of, Amer of the revolutionary period in America, Samuel Johnson, uh, who was this British uh, writer, made this very uh, astute observation about uh, America and the movement. And he said at that time, why do we hear the loudest yelps of liberty from the drivers of Negroes? Uh, so the the you know the people who were fighting hardest for independence from the british at that time in the name of freedom were also the same people who were who had uh, you know vast slave holdings and were you know oppressing their slaves in just kind of like the most horrendous ways so how is it possible that those people who are raising the siren cry of liberty can also be so oppressive. I mean, this is kind of like, and it was, it's, you know, this dilemma was poignant in America at that time, but every polity everywhere faces it to some extent. It is that, you know, you, your own, uh, you know, your, your own deeper um, and somewhat darker impulses are not evident to you. 
because you know you buy into a worldview and you stop questioning it and it's people who don't share that worldview that's that dominant worldview can enlighten you know tensions in that worldview for you that's what minority activism basically does minority activism allows you to see the tensions and the inconsistencies in your old worldview in your own worldview and thereby allows you to constantly make it more consistent and stronger so for that reason you know don't you know don't consider minority activism a threat consider it your friend and your foe in your i mean your friend and your ally in this common endeavor towards tre- strengthening liberal democracies and putting it on a solid foundation um that you know uh we all want it to be because it's the only system on the planet that has delivered the kind of prosperity and peace uh for 200 years uh you know that everybody should for always enjoy shakad dalmia thank you very much for joining me again on the curious task thank you This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>